You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 103 of the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. got my co-host Eurosimos in the house as always. Today, we have the amazing Stephen Ravenstag joining us again. He joined us way back in episode 60. Today, we have a deep conversation into the nature of narcissism. Our narcissism is reflected um, and interacts in the concepts of religion. We talk about our own religious journeys. We share some personal stories and we get into how we can actually um, deal with narcissists as well in terms of setting boundaries and enforcing boundaries. So this is an awesome conversation. Just before we get into that, um, our Friends of the Truth private community, so much fun on our last community call. Um, we got, yeah, we got Irene Lyon, nervous system expert, joining us later this month um, as a guest expert. And our members will get the chance to ask her questions. If you're interested in, you know, seeking out um, real, grounded, intuitive truth seekers who are on the path, who are human, but who are looking to become the best versions of themselves, and you want your fire to be inspired by um, the fire of a community, then please consider joining Friends of the Truth. You can find out more at friendsofthetruth.co. We'd love to meet you and connect with you especially those who listen and enjoy this podcast. Uh, without any further ado, guys, here's Stephen. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Here for the truth. We have Stephen Ravenstag back with us again. Hopefully I pronounced that last name properly. Ravenstag. <laughs> Good enough for me. The way you pronounce it is the right that, way. It sounds so sexy. Um, anyways, <laughs> Stephen was um, a guest on episode 60 way back when. We got into talking about awareness and um understanding marxism and wokeism uh, and today i think we're going to get into an interesting topic so welcome back Stephen. good to have you here thank you great to be here cool um you know we're going to get into a topic that i think um, many of us are familiar with um and it's something that gets thrown around all the time and it's the topic of narcissism and narcissism and relationships um but first off because it's a word that gets thrown around all the time i want to start simple and go Stephen. What is the definition of narcissism from your point of view? Uh, well, you know, my, my sort of personal relationship with that term is interesting because when I when I first started encountering it a lot, I, you probably remember five or six, seven years ago, you sort of seeing a lot on social media, especially on uh, Facebook, and there's groups for narcs and all this different stuff. And if you've got a narc mother-in-law or a narc mother and all this. And the, the first impression I had, honestly, was that a lot of people that were enthusiastically into the narcissism culture or the anti-narcissism culture seemed kind of narcissistic themselves. You know, there, there, there seemed to be this tendency to identify anybody that was in any way inconvenient to them mm -hmm. or that disagreed with them or that presented some information to them that they couldn't reconcile with their own worldview or they couldn't overcome. Oh, that person's a narcissist, you know. And so you can imagine I was accused of being narcissist quite a bit in these groups. If I would say, if I would say, just ask for an explanation about what this is and all this. And the other thing I noticed was that there were certain people who were super into the term who seemed also to be very averse to discussions of personal responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that that's always a one-to-one -one thing, but that there is, and I think there's a difference too between a person who acknowledges or recognizes that they've been in a relationship with people who show narcissistic tendencies 
And a person who becomes overly enthusiastic about the concept of narcissism and, oh, he's a narcissist and she's a narcissist and everyone who disagrees with me must be a narcissist. Those are different groups of people. I'm talking here about the people that are a little too into the concept. They get a little too excited about it. And you can start to see that there's a little part inside that goes, oh boy, I can smuggle so many of my own dysfunctions and my own inclinations to avoid dealing with things into this model, into this worldview. So a lot of it's kind of the unconscious attitude with which the person person approaches and then utilizes the concept. But I noticed that they were really, <clears throat> I would say, not even averse to the idea of personal responsibility. They were triggered by conversations that veered too close to topics that even implied something like personal responsibility. And, and I was just like, okay, this is interesting because regardless of the extent to which there may be something true in this model of reality that describes certain types of people called narcissists that engage in certain types of things called narcissistic behavior. That, let's say that's true. It also seems to be definitely true that certain people get so enamored of that model that it affects their relationship to personal responsibility and almost makes potentially empowering concepts in connection to personal responsibility, I would say psychologically viable or psychologically unsafe, or their guard kind of goes up a little bit because they feel like maybe it's compromising something that they're getting out of that model. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely does. Yeah. So like when people hear that word, what is it like, what does it mean? Like what is narcissism? Oh, right. what mean? Are, well, what are some of the behaviors and traits, I guess, associated with that term? I, oh, yes, I forgot your question, of course. <laughs> Everything else you said was great. Yeah. Um, it, the, the thing that I, and I'm like not an expert in this, right? I, I help people improve what it's like to be them. And recently I've been encountering a lot of people who are coming out of, of kind of being sucked into the, the, the altered reality of narcissistic people's uh, sort of view of things, right? And as far as I can tell, one of the prevailing tendencies of, narcissistic people is that they attempt to impose upon other people their model, their view of reality, their experience of reality. It's almost as if their preferences, there's this, sometimes it's physical and that there's a physical abuse component to it. But a lot of the time, it's just this weird coercive thought control where a person will, let's say, even express their opinion in a way that implies that that opinion should be extremely weighty in the mind of the other person. Like, let's say a mother-daughter, for instance. We had a number of women in uh, awareness school, our last round, shameless plug, first of many. Um, and like <laughs> one one person in, in, in the group, you know, shared, God, you know, I, I come from, you know, I had a narcissistic mother and, and I wasn't allowed to have my own viewpoints. And, you know, as I was listening to her describe different things, I was like, okay, no, what sounds like what was happening was your mother was attempting to recreate everything about her perception and experience of reality in you so that your behaviors would sort of mirror back to her things that were consistent with her own outlook. She, you know, for instance, the, the daughter would go out to dinner with her husband and then she would share the fact that she had gone out to the restaurant with her husband with the mother and the mother would then go, oh, I hate that food. And the mother would go, oh, you know, I, I think you eat out too often and all this different yeah. stuff. And, you know, a normal person would say, why are you even telling me this? Um, and as a rhetorical question, that's a good thing to, to ask, but it's also literally a good question to ask yourself. Why is this person telling me this? Why are they sharing their opinion? Because they think and are attempting to get me to think that what they think about what I'm doing in this area of my life ought to matter to me. You know, so it's this, this attempt to coerce a person, I think, into thinking that your opinion matters and to take that when it doesn't and to take that 
tendency to such a point that the individual starts having difficulty distinguishing between what their opinion is and what the opinion is that they're creating inside themselves to avoid pissing off the narcissistic person. Yeah. So like this to me sounds a lot like about what I'm hearing in terms of the definitions of gaslighting as well. So what is the relationship, I guess, between gaslighting and narcissism and what's the differences there? I, I mean, as far as I can tell, I would say gas and that gaslighting is one of those terms, too, that when I first started hearing it, the first yeah. context in which I heard it seemed like creepy gaslighting in and of itself. And so for a long but, mm-hmm. but then it's like there is a there there. And very often, you know, it's this is a leftist thing. They'll just they'll accuse other people of doing things that they're doing. So if you want to understand sort of the leftist playbook, you listen to them describe the way the world is and they're telling you what they're doing. Um, and so the gaslighting thing is making a person think they're crazy for an objection that they have to something about what you're doing. It's a, it's a, it's a non-consensual reality distorting effort on the part of one person with regard to another. You know, I, I mean, I would say that in a lot of my work, I enter into what you might call a consensual reality distorting endeavor or project with people where a person lives a certain life and that life invites them to think, feel, and do certain things that tend to perpetuate the life that they currently have. If they don't like that life, to some extent, it can be useful to say, okay, listen, what we're going to do is start pretending like certain things that are true aren't and that certain things that aren't true are. You know, if a person's convinced that they're not worthy, it's like, well, let's start pretending that you do feel like you're worthy or let's start pretending like life treated you as though you were. That's a consensual activity. Let's play with the creative capacity of your mind to get this stuff done. Um, gaslighting to me is when I don't tell you that that's what we're doing. And when I have an agenda to get you to behave in ways that are convenient to me and not behave in ways that are inconvenient to me, not only just in specific circumstances, I don't even want to have to persuade you on a case by case basis to do what I want you to do. I want to install inside your mind, a program that constantly takes into consideration what I want, what I would want, what I will think, what I might think, and so on and so forth, so that I can just kind of set it and forget it like that there's that scene on TV turkey roaster thing, except for I'm doing it in the mind of my child or my spouse or whatever. And it's, you know, it's pretty sick. Yeah. Was that, was that the, was that the Ron Popeil? Popeil? Was he the, the person who did all the infomercials? Said it and forget it. I think that's it. Yeah. Master of obscure references. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, from that perspective, it would seem to me that Crowd consciousness in general is highly narcissistic because we're all constantly thinking what people are going to think, say, do, feel about what we do, right? There's this program from the crowd constantly installed in most of our heads in terms of Mm -hmm. having to double check our premise on everything we do. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and for me, it's like I'm sort of like awareness is a thing that I'm big on. And so it's it can have adaptive capacities. It, you know, it, it it's useful for me to be able to ask myself what Melissa might think about something I'm considering saying and doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see pretty easily how that if that program is able to install itself above my conscious awareness so that my conscious awareness isn't sitting above it and using it as a tool. My conscious awareness as in my mental activity is actually constrained by that program yep. in a way that I don't have control over. That's when it becomes a problem. And so, you know, it's pretty much with anything, any idea, if you think of an idea like a tool, um, it's a hammer. It's not inherently good or bad. It's like, am I hammering in nails to prevent people from getting hurt, hammering in nails to hang up beautiful artwork, or, or am I hammering uh, my toes yeah. and my fingers or other people's toes and fingers, you know? And so a lot of what this is, is that your mind has the ability to learn a lot of stuff. And it learns bullshit and it learns things that are absolutely poison to you just as easily and just as willingly as it learns things that are super empowering. And so it's useful to have a part of yourself that's aware enough to sit up above that learning process and go, I don't know if I've overlearned. I need to learn something additional so that I can control this learning so that it doesn't dominate my life. 
What do you think is the biggest challenge um, that people have that you found in your coaching practice and in your program about just dealing with narcissistic individuals? I, I think it's, I think it's getting, getting, getting over, getting a handle, getting a, um, getting enough distance between that machine inside that makes them go, yes, but what, what will she think about this? Or yes, but what will he think about that? And it's, it's, it's making it so like, if there's a voice in your head that's asking you a question, that's a scary question. You know, what, what if something bad happens or whatever? Um, the difference between just having to listen to that voice, sort of like, you know, Satan whispering in your ear, or like, you know, I probably used this reference before, but like Jafar whispering into the ear of the Sultan and saying, what if I this and what if that? And then the Sultan goes, oh shit, yeah, you're right. What if that? That's pretty bad and all this. The difference between that and having the ability to step back and go, who's that whispering in my ear? What are they saying? Why are they saying it? What does the fact that they're saying it say to me about whether they're a friend or an enemy of mine? And so, you know, as you're building awareness, you've got these machines in your mind that are generating these questions. And if when that question is generated, you've got no choice but to run with that question. You accept the premises of the question. So, you know, what, what will she think about this? What are the premises? What she thinks about it matters. Um, I need to be concerned about what she thinks about it, so on and so forth. I have no power, no control. If, however, I can have a part of myself stand aside from it, and start to become curious about the fact that of all the things the mind could be asking me, my mind could be asking me, it's asking me what somebody's going to think about what I, an adult man or woman, are choosing to do with my life. And I can go, Jesus, that's kind of fucked up. And I can start saying to myself, I think I have a problem here that has nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that somebody in my life may be a little narcissistic. My primary problem at this stage and the most important area where I can start directing my personal responsibility, my capacity for autonomy, is doing something about the fact that I've got a machine in my head asking me not useful questions instead of asking me useful ones. When you say machine in your head, do you mean just like another aspect of yourself that's labeled the machine? You know, you can, you can, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you, you, my, I thought a certain thought often enough. Or I had a traumatic life experience that kind of initiated the style of thinking or manner of thinking or line of thinking, you know, one time. Um, it, it, I, I thought it often enough or I thought it intensely enough that now I don't have to try to think it in order for it to be there anymore. You know, there's certain thoughts that feel great that you have to really sit down and make an effort to think. And there's other thoughts that maybe feel not so great. You don't have to try at all. You just have to encounter a certain thing, a certain smell, a certain tone of voice, or a certain context situation, and the mind just starts churning those things out. I'm just kind of referring to that as a machine. The mind's gotten so good at thinking something, it doesn't even need my help to do it. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a program that's running, you know, and ultimately it's it's psychological control. That's that's the goal of narcissism, ultimately. So, but what is the motivation for narcissistic behavior? What's what's the psychological um, premise of the narcissist that wants them to cause and wreak psychological havoc and tyranny on other people. You know, as far as I can tell, there's there's different. It's not it's not necessarily one. You know, in a lot of cases, these people, and this is people are sometimes resistant to this because they feel it's absolving them. I don't think it absolves them at all. I think it helps a person to appreciate how kind of dangerous these people can be, and it explains how how they can be so powerful in their interactions with others. A lot of the time, they are not acutely conscious of the fact that they're doing what they're doing. They they don't say to themselves, I'm going to undermine her confidence, and I'm going to punish her when she does this, and I'm going to reward her when she does that. They actually have a very sophisticated, but largely, I would say, you know, other than conscious 
system for manipulating people around them. And so they they actually, there's a part of them, the part with which they're identified, you know, was that what I call it the me I experienced to be me, right? They can, you know, when they go like this, I never intended to do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to do this. Yeah. I oh. was just doing and the part of them that's generating that those words, that that verbiage, that part is being honest because people believe that if they can keep their activity outside of conscious awareness, that suits their criteria for it's not happening. If I'm not aware of doing it, that means that I'm not doing it. And you know, they can they, people can be very skillful at avoiding noticing patterns when avoid when, when noticing those patterns would be inconvenient for them, when it would be psychologically disconcerting to see that they terribly mistreat the people that are around them. And so when you're dealing with it, you know, you have to understand that people have that, that non-understanding and misunderstanding, as far as I can tell, are not things that just happen. That oftentimes there are powerful, unconscious, psychological forces that are seeking to ensure that non-understanding occurs or that understanding doesn't occur. So as far as I can tell, the narcissist tries to make the world in their image. They try to control the perception of everyone around them to reflect how they want that person to see the world and feel about everything that's taking place. And to this extent, I would say that the architects of control of this planet are highly narcissistic, are highly psychopathic in that regard. They're trying to make everyone in their image by constantly feeding them lies, illusions, um, you know, endless endless rabbit holes to dig down. Well, what are your thoughts on that? That seems true. It it seems true when you say it, and it also is consistent with a kind of impression that I'm forming, which is that things that occur at one level, you know, intrapersonally within me, like me and myself having a conversation, those same things play out in my relationship with Melissa and my relationship with other people and things that play out between couples oftentimes will play out between small groups and all this. And so I think that you do, when you get into the pattern level of things, you'll find this is the same stuff that's happening up here. Now they're working at a larger scale, they're employing different technology and stuff, but basically what's happening is this. And, you know, one of the things for me that's largely the same in both of those cases is I really believe that the manipulability mm-hmm. precedes and gives rise to the manipulation, that, that that it invites it, that it that my willingness to be gaslit yeah. makes me complicit in the process of gaslighting. And that in no way um, sets off the responsibility of the abuse of gaslighter. There's more than enough responsibility for everyone. Everybody is messing up. Everybody is creating a mess. And, and that for me, you now if I come and I tell somebody who's been suffering for years under this stuff, it's your fault. You're playing your role in it too. That, that doesn't work. Timing is important. It's like baking, creating a realization is like baking a cake. It's like if I cook the eggs before I mix them in, it's not going to work, you know? But if I as an individual can, through a series of, you know, awarenesses and realizations and things, realize, wow, I now see that I was, and to some extent, under some circumstances, I still am or still do play a role in this manipulative process. You know, if if somebody expresses an opinion about something I'm doing that's none of their business, and I'm in any way inclined to care about that or feel bad about that, I start to acknowledge there's a pattern, there's a program in me that is capable of generating a bad feeling in response to what they said, even though I might know intellectually that what they said isn't right or isn't true or doesn't need to weigh on me, I still have the ability to make a bad feeling in response to what they said. That's a me issue. That's a me problem. That's a me project. And as I become really aware of that, without condemning myself for it, it's just pure recognition. I've got some work to do too. 
I really start to chip away at that pattern. You know, I, I think that a lot of times the patterns that we see in other people exist partly in us as well, to the extent that we are uh, experientially compromised by them or are suffering over them. And so the more people, I mean, I honestly think that as people become less manipulable, that these evil villains will actually just vanish from the world, not mm-hmm. physically disappear, but almost like Wicked Witch of the West kind of thing, where it's just kind of like, they just sort of dry up, wither up, and just sort of blow off into the wind. Because they're behaving in ways that are basically rational, given the fact that people are as credulous and are as receptive to things like oppression and manipulation as they are. That's the problem in many cases. It's not that the leaders are dishonest. It's that it makes sense for the leaders to be dishonest, given how much dishonesty the average person is willing to accept. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the master-slave dynamic right there. You the, know, they're, they're, you're going to say something? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, though, the master needs a slave and the slave needs the master. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bonding pattern, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And uh, I want to highlight something and trigger warning to everyone listening. Um, but all of this ultimately comes down to savior programming. You know, that's, that, that, that's why the narcissist is able to manipulate us to such a degree. And what's the number one voice that the majority of Western culture have in their heads? God, right? So is the God of the Bible highly narcissistic? <laughs> you shall not eat I that mean, fruit otherwise you'll be condemned right you yeah. can't do this you can't right. do that you can't enjoy yourself think of me every single thing for every single act that you make think of me first right no other gods before me which is sort of interesting because i wouldn't even thought about any other gods if you hadn't mentioned them but now i kind of want to talk to them and see what they're like you know <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah yeah you know it it, it is and, and i you know there are people who are you know very kind of sympathetic to or, or or attached to certain religious traditions and they'll come in and they'll say oh that's not true and all this different stuff and i do I, I know people who are involved with you know christianity that 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 fall on both sides of that yeah and that to me highlight but I, I so what you're saying is definitely true but it also highlights the the extent to which it, the, the attitude of the individual in question really does matter yes. because one person will come upon an idea and they will inflict that idea upon themselves and other people whereas someone else will come upon an idea and they have a certain what would you say a certain tact a certain sense a certain decency where they know when to use that idea and when not to and so it's it, it, it it certainly seems as though some of the people who may have been involved in compiling certain religious texts probably were a little narcissistic. I mean, it's, you know, because they read that and they said, yeah, this is the way I'd like to be, or yeah, this is the way that I am. Um, but there is a lot of religious programming in a lot of people's minds and and most of it's not useful. And most of the time, the person isn't even being maximally opportunistic in how they think about the religious text and how they think about the precepts. They don't even, they, they very rarely visit the ones that are like, throw all your cares and worries upon me, right? Oh, I'm a, I'm a terrible sinner and I don't think about God enough. Well, are you worried about it? Well, it also says to throw all your worries upon God. So you're not doing that. You're, and so you can find these little inconsistencies in the belief systems a lot of times that will reveal within the person. A big part of my problem is I don't maximally exploit whatever set of rules I'm working with. You know what I mean? I'm just curious on this topic too, since Joel, you brought it up and we kind of ventured into um, religion and um, what, like, what are the benefits? Like, what do you think are the benefits and what are the, the, the challenges uh, on that front? You know, you ask I'm, I'm asking both of you, you know, cause obviously it's something that's been around for a really long time. And hmm. there are a lot of people that I've come across in my life who are connected to faith and connected to a certain uh, spiritual tradition and they're lovely human beings and uh, they live their life and they utilize the, 
the lens of religion or let's say a subscription for morality, you know, whereas others don't. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I'm just curious. I might as well just get in a little bit of a conversation on this if you want. Well, I mean, I, f- I feel like man, you know, needs a deep meaning. He needs something to to, to grasp onto. He needs something to, to pull him forth. Um, you know, so I think that's one of the benefits is that it can provide an individual who's not going to become completely waylaid by the entire savior programming of it. it can provide them with deep meaning, something beyond themselves, something greater than them to to work towards. So that's yeah. one benefit that I can start with. I think a big element also is, um, and Stephen, let me know your thoughts on this. And I guess this is how it was when I was growing up because I grew up Greek Orthodox. Uh, it wasn't like hardcore programming of like, you know, you're going to burn in hell. Uh, but there's a this social, cultural element of it and um, community element of it that I think as social beings we need. And church has played that role, you know, for a very long time. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, I guess a lot of my perspective on that's informed by my own personal experience, which is that I grew up in a household that was really not at all religious until I was about five or six, seven years old. I mean, yeah, we had grandparents. I knew that my grandparents went to church and it was regarded as a fine and a nice thing to do. Maybe on Easter we would go, you know. And then when I was, you know, six or seven, somewhere in that area, um, my dad got really interested in sort of evangelical Christianity. So the Southern Baptist kind of stuff. And he started going and became, you know, as as one tends to do, really into it. You don't get a lot of kind of casual uh, uh, born-again people, you know. And I remember distinctly uh, being kind of nervous about his being so interested in this. And, re- and I remember always thinking what it was going to represent to me in terms of what I was going to have to do, because I had no interest in it at all. And I just, I, I do remember him describing certain things to me, like, <clears throat> excuse me, he was saying, well, yeah, don't you just feel like there's just something missing from your life and all, and, you know, there's, and, 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 you know, your people are bad and all this, but God loves you anyway. And I just, I couldn't relate to any of that at all. I couldn't relate to this feeling that there was this deity shaped hole within me that, 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 you know, going to these events. First of all, when we go to these events, I was just acutely aware of being in a building full of other people. I never felt particularly close to any, you know, ethereal or whatever kind of presence. It wasn't like I never felt God before, but I got in a room full of 300 people that were had funny cologne on and, and, and dresses and, and, and all of a sudden and hairspray. And I all of a sudden said, oh, God, you know, here's God. He wasn't here before. And so it was weird because I kind of felt like they were just getting into something I just didn't get. And one of the things that I did feel was I felt this weird and persistent invitation to convince myself that I did need that and mm-hmm. that it actually was important. And, you know, there would be these altar calls where at the end of the sermon, you, you're, you're supposed to go down to the front. And I remember the first time I went and I saw that happen, I said, I will never do this. I'm not, I'm not into this. This is not my thing. I'm not going to get up and do a performance for these people. It's not going to happen. And I remember that you'd get little nudges and people would look. And I remember being asked, well, do you think you'll ever get up and go down there and, you know, talk to them about how God's talking to you and all this different stuff? And I was just like, please, please don't make me do this. Like, you know, it's like going to a dance when you don't want to dance and somebody's trying to force you to do it. I don't want to be involved. And so I did, there, there was a, and I, and I think maybe it did fulfill something you know, for my dad. I, I think that there was something he needed that he found there and that's really great. However, it was also very inconvenient for me who was not deficient in whatever that thing was that he was getting out of it. And there was something in him and, and I, and in order for him to get what he needed to get out of it, and, and, you know, it's not his fault. It's built into the program here. You know, it's like a timeshare. It's like an MLM. What do you got to do? You got to bring other people in because he can't go all in on it. And you can't, you can't get the maximum benefits if you don't go all in. And if you don't go, and if you go all in, you got to believe that your young son's everlasting soul depends upon his 
showing up to church and drinking the grape juice and doing all this different stuff, you know? And so he was then motivated to pull me into something and to completely ignore the fact that I had no interest in it whatsoever, that I was obviously miserable when I was there. That I think put a great deal of strain on our relationship. Uh, it was just sort of an inconvenience for me as a kid. And so I think it is hard for people to entertain religion without getting so into it that it begins to interfere sometimes with their relationships with other people, with, I think, what Joel alluded to in the beginning, with their relationship with themselves, um, which in general, any relationship that requires you to facilitate alienation from yourself, whether it's to an idea or to a person or to a deity, it's probably not a good idea. It's we either need to renegotiate the terms or we need to find a different person to get in a relationship with or something. I'm not ready for this because I'm not prepared to imagine that there's something defective with me in order to buy your product. Oh, I, you cured a problem I didn't even know I had. And I felt that pressure and that invitation. And life would have been so much easier and so much nicer had I acquiesced to it and said, you know, Jesus, you guys are right. This is really important. I mean, I, I would have been much closer to my family had I done that, but it just never felt like the right thing to do to me. You know, and so I think that when you enter into any kind of informational exchange, you need that informed consent. No, nobody ever says this to anybody. Nobody ever says, listen, the world is full of people. People have minds. Those minds are full of ideas. And you're going to interact with those ideas. And when people pitch those ideas to you, they're going to pitch them to you like they're the best idea and the most important idea you've ever heard in your life. And you need to be smart. And you need to think about whether what they're saying makes any sense. And you need to question why they're saying what they're saying to you. Look at them. Look at how they're shaped. Look at how they move. Look at what they're wearing. Look at who they hang out with. Look at what their life is actually like. Consider the source as this information is washing over you. And you know, think about it. You know what I mean? Don't just hear it and run with it. Jump out of your body, look at them, look at you, look at the room that you're in, and consider the fact that this information is being exchanged. Don't just listen to it, install it. Like people are very careful about, you remember, remember like Napster, and like you would get free music off Napster, but then it would also have a computer virus on it, and it would like ruin things for you. <laughs> I feel like this same thing happens with information all the time. Someone's like, hey, it'll change your life, and there's wonderful community, and all these different things. And you go, oh, it all sounds good. And then you put it in there, and all of a sudden, your hard drive doesn't work anymore. You can't run basic programs because you got stuff in there that's screwing it up. <laughs> Dude. That was such a great explanation. I actually love this topic. Uh, I didn't think we were going to go into it. And I love that you shared a little bit, uh, a little piece of of your experience on this. And, you know, I grew up religiously, but not in the hardcore sense, you know, Greek Orthodox Church. Oh, great. Start talking about yourself, Erasmus. Yeah, exactly. This is an episode of narcissism. So um, I'm going to make this about <laughs> me. Um, and then again, you'll have the mic after, Joel. Um, yes. You don't have to make it about you. It is about you. It's just the yes. way it is. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This is, this is, I'm the co-host of this podcast. <laughs> um, I don't forgot what I was, what I was even going to say. <laughs> no, I was saying that like, I, you know, I grew up religiously, but not in this like hardcore radical, like uh, evangelical uh, lens, you know? Um, but I went to, I was an altar boy. I was telling the story the other day. I was an altar boy for like, I don't know how many years from like six to 18, I had perfect attendance in Sunday school. And for me, I just went there because my friends were there and th there was cool things to do. And, but I never felt that when I was in the church, I mean, besides some of the chants and some of the songs that I thought were like, you know, they had an impact on me, but I never, I would look around and sometimes I see some like older Greek ladies and they felt like they were just like connected to something. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, I didn't feel that, you know, like, so what you were talking about before, it's like, I wasn't in this room with 200, 300 people and being like, well, now I feel 
that void is full. And now I feel connected to God. I went there because this was a thing I did. My parents did it. My mom was hardcore. She would come into our room every Sunday morning and just open up the, the blinds and be like, okay, time to go. And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I just want to sleep, mom. But we didn't. We went every single time. Um, I'm grateful for some of the experiences. But again, that's the the main lens through which my mom sees the world. So when I went away to college, when I went, when I moved away from home and I was in Boston University and I was partying and experimenting and just living college life and I didn't go to church and my mom would like ask me why not and I just was like I just don't you know and she she doesn't really have the conversations with me much anymore um and I haven't gone in a while but it's it's interesting where it's like that's like you need to see the world and you need to look at the world through the same lens that I do or else you're bad or else you're or else you're not good enough or or else, you know, everything that I did and everything that I taught to you is is a waste, you know, and it's like, that's not the case. You know, I made different choices. It was my life. Does that yeah. make me like someone who's going to burn in hell? I don't think so. But I find maybe a little bit more meaning within through other things that I've explored and experimented with in my life, as opposed to, you know, needing to go between these walls and gather with a group of people in this more conventional sense. That being said, I have such gratitude for these experiences that I had. There was a lot of learning. There was a lot of different things I took part in, competition, youth organizations, things that I that I really, um, I think certain parts of my personality were able to come through during that time and had experiences that added value to my life that still serve me today. Mm-hmm. Nice. Do you notice how I wasn't listening to you because my, my light turned off and I was thinking about how I looked. And so I didn't hear anything that you said the whole time. <laughs> now, it, it's interesting. You mentioned that like the Greek Orthodox thing. And I, you know, it is different. And, and this, and obviously the Catholicism is different, but I actually became kind of interested in Catholicism. And I was probably like uh, 14 or 15. And it, you know, it, it was kind of a happenstance thing where my step grandfather was Catholic. And so I would occasionally go to mass with him. And uh, then I visited Germany and I was I was in Bavaria, which is heavily Catholic. And so the lady there was like super religious, like I had to do all sorts of strange rituals for her that she thought were very important. And there, there was a, a, an element of a cultural significance, you know, that I felt and that I and that I enjoyed a lot. And I was like, OK, I kind of get this. There's a substance here that the whole kind of Southern religious revival thing I never really identified with. But this is kind of nice. I mean, this is beautiful architecture and there's these elaborate rituals and there was a a kind of a sustenance socially to the whole thing. Um, And, but at the same time, I mean, am I going to be taking it seriously for my whole life and doing, you know, probably not. Um, At the same time though, you know, I'm not a person who is anti-religious in the the idea that I, I, I want it to all go away. Like, I kind of feel good about the fact that it exists. And a lot of people who are trying to get rid of it, whether they're militant atheists or in many cases, they're sort of Marxists and something like that, that's going to be big trouble. That's going to be a huge issue. And and there's not going to be nothing in that vacuum. There's going to be something that's probably, I mean, however dumb you think the dumbest parts of religion are, the secular substitute for it's going to be just as stupid. It's going to be probably even more vehement and radical because it's got this veneer of secular rationality attached to it everyone's going to think that it's not a religion, which is really kind of the most dangerous. I mean, it always kind of makes me laugh when people go, well, I understand why you don't like religion, but this is Jesus. This isn't religion. And it's just sort of like, to me, that's like saying, well, you know, I understand why you don't like ice cream, but this this isn't ice cream. This is Bluebell. And it's just kind of, I mean, it's, it's such a transparent, I mean, I, okay, I, I mean, I get it. It's built into the religion that this is the right religion. But don't you understand that every religion has built into it that this is the right religion? 
every dishwasher that's marketed says it gets out, every toothpaste gets out more stains and everyone has nine out of 10 dentists that approve. Don't you understand that they all say that? Now, I'm not saying that what you're saying is not true. I'm just saying that what you've just said doesn't constitute compelling evidence or a response to the objection that I had to begin with, which was that, eh, not really into this stuff. Well, this isn't this stuff. This is this stuff, you know? It's sort of like, well, okay. I, I mean, I see what you're doing here. I, and it was one of the more amusing experiences that I had in terms of people trying to convert me. It was one of the last conversations that I had with my dad about this stuff. And he said, you know, it was basically the Pascal's wager thing, which is basically, okay, if Christianity is not true and you adhere to it, what have you lost? You've lived a good life. You've treated people well. You've done the right thing and so on and so forth. But if it is true and you don't live by it, right, well, then you're, you know, you're really in trouble. And so based on that assessment, which is a risk assessment, I'm going to go with disbelieving it, right? And the, the amazing thing for me is that what you're demonstrating there is an evolutionarily derived preference for false negatives or for false positives, excuse me, which is to say, I'm going down to the to the river and there's a big bush and I see a rustle in it. And I say to myself, eh, I might be a tiger in there that's going to eat me, right? If I say to myself, well, I don't, I, let me go further down the river and check it out. And there was no tiger in that bush. I haven't lost that much, right? Uh, I believed Christianity, even though it wasn't true, right? I lived a good life. I walked a little bit extra. Who cares? But if I say to myself, well, there might be a tiger in there, man, but there's probably not. And I go down to the river and I get eaten and I don't reproduce. Well, that's the end of me. And so there is this preference for being on the safe side that biology has what I find to be a pretty interesting explanation for that then biological animals use as a reason that you should buy into their particular religious brand, which I just kind of find a little funny. And I, and I, I, I said that to this person, they didn't find it funny at all. And that's when I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. Yeah. There's a lot of podcasts out there, but this is the best podcast. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> it's, it's so true, man. I mean, and like, I think Ayn Rand said something along the lines of um, the unknown doesn't grant one a license to create fantasy. Right. Now, I guess I'll talk about me for a bit, considering you guys have spoken about yourselves so much. Um, so I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. So this Oh, is this story again. Anyway, I've got more fans than you, so it's all good. <laughs> no worries. So super, super intense, right? But let me let me tell you. Jehovah's Witnesses is this is pitched. The branding is the truth, much like here for the Truth podcast. It's pitched as the truth. So this is the. It's not even. It's not even like I'm a Jehovah's Witness. It's like I'm part of the truth. That's literally how it. How everyone in, within there feels, thinks, etc., etc., etc. Um. So my entire life, I thought I was in on this big secret. I was the one that held the truth. I was one that was part of the truth. I was the lucky one to know the truth. And all these people that were celebrating Christmas and having birthdays, I was like, haha, you know, you're going to fucking burn in hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but nah, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. Anyway, so ultimately, though, um, it was intense programming. I recall being maybe eight, nine years old. And like, I would feel and think of myself as defective, even for a train of thought going, to it, going into a place that questioned Jehovah. I remember like having this constant dialogue in my head, trying to convince myself that Jehovah is good, Satan is bad. Jehovah is good, Satan is bad. I remember being seven, eight years old, just this going on and on and on and on and on. So um, it's something that really derails one's life and definitely limits their potential and definitely throttles throttles an individual as well. Um, I had to go through a process of deep revocations 
because of this Jehovah programming. You know, I would question myself over the approval of this, of Jehovah for everything that I did, for every thought that I thought. You know, is is this going to be okay in the eyes and and the in the mind of Jehovah? And you know, it was it was a very very big effort for me to actually get to a point of even just having that those moments of revocation within myself, where it's like, no, I reject this now. That was scary. That was incredibly scary with the amount of intense programming that was there. Um, so yeah, I, I get the intensity of, of of religion for sure. But in terms of a positive, there is a positive as well that I experienced in all of this. And it made me very accustomed to going against the crowd. Because particularly within school and whatnot, I was the kid that didn't celebrate Christmas. I was the kid that didn't have birthdays. I was the kid that was doing something else while everyone was off doing their, their Christianity classes or whatnot. Um, so it also strengthened my my resolve in going against the grain in that regard. So that's that's my addition to this conversation. Yeah, I, I can see where that would be really useful. And there is something there is something going against the grain. There's a certain experience that comes along with that, yeah. kind of regardless of what the context of your going against the grain happens to be. And so I can see where, where you would have mastered a skill where the feeling of being kind of the odd man out or whatever. Oh, that's familiar to me. That's not a problem. And so now that you're kind of in the driver's seat of your mind a little bit, and life has placed you in a position of being a different kind of Jehovah's Witness, right? <laughs> One that uh, does. That you're, 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 you're actually it's kind of interesting, right? So whereas before it sounds like you were somewhat alienated because of the fact that you were in a religion, whereas now it sounds like you're alienated because you're not in a religion of wearing a mask and of you know living inside yeah. your your bubble and all this different stuff, but. The, the skills that you acquired of navigating that, that feeling have translated to it in a useful way. And that to me is an example of how, you know, a, a, my ability to learn from things or to extract things of value from life experiences is, is kind of like the upper limit of that is set largely by my skill set. And like to the extent that I develop the skills to extract learning and things of value from that stuff, um, I will recognize the value that's there and benefit from it. Was there something in particular for you that began the process of, of, thinking your way out of it or was it kind of just a gradual natural thing in terms of the process of disillusionment um so my so we so with the jehovah's witnesses like you go to they're called meetings the good the kingdom call you have meetings consistently my parents actually stopped attending the meetings i think when i was about 13 or 14 um and that was curious to me i was like why but we still had like a tutor coming over to give us bible study lessons and whatnot with me and my brother and it was just a, i think it was just a gradual process of like you know as I guess, as your ability to think and consciousness enhances, you just start questioning what you're being taught. You know, people are sitting there trying to pitch you these Bible passages as the absolute truth. And you just ask the, ask the question, you know, like, you know, what if, what if this is, if this, what if this isn't all going to be an eternal paradise at the end of the day? What if there's not only 144,000 people that are going to end up in heaven and everyone else is going to just, you know, um, be the serfs, so to speak? Like, like, you know, you just start asking those questions. It begins to open doors, begins to open gaps. Um, but even beyond that, at the final gate, there's still this thing where it's like, oh, what if I'm wrong? You know, because that's how that's how heavy it is, which is what you were pointing at as well. Um, and I think ultimately it's that feeling of, you know, defectiveness that draws someone in to want to have uh to have to have a religion and to have a God. Um mm. people need black and white ways to explain reality. And if something can provide it to them, then, you know, usually it's hook, line and sink up because ultimately, as you know, reality in life is very complex. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge, right? And to have to be responsible for the challenge of life and 
of developing your own personal view of reality and, and, and understanding is scary. It's scary to be an individual. And that's why I guess personalism has not many fans and anything that crowds flock to um, seems to seems to be the gold when really it's usually shit. Yeah. Hmm. 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 You're just down there thinking about yourself, aren't you? What were you thinking? I was. I was <laughs> like, what story? Oh, he's frozen. <laughs> frozen. I'm glad, I'm glad it's you and not me. I was afraid I was going to have problems. No, no. I just, I have to say, dude, it's really nice to um, talk about some personal stories, you know? Like somebody's in podcasting you know, and you can sit here and just kind of deliver information and share knowledge. And, and I think... I know I've gotten feedback from from some of our listeners that in those episodes when we have shared like pieces of ourselves and in our journey and and uh, what we've gone through and uh, I don't know I think people appreciate it so like I appreciate you sharing uh, your uh, your history with your uh, religion your religious history and also even your experiences that you had when you were in uh, Europe afterwards as a teen so anyways I didn't, again I didn't think we were going to go from narcissism to our religious histories but hey this is how it goes. There you go. You know, and I, and I just like to say, I think I ask Joel a really good question as like the guest, you know, usually the guest doesn't ask the question, but I thought that was a really good question. And I also want to say, I, I almost came in. I was like, Hey, listen, we're the hosts. We asked the questions, but I was like, okay, I'll let you I know. Knew it. I, I, I felt that thought like clanging around in your head. But Joel, one of the things that you said was like that you, that you kind of stopped going and there was yeah. this inconsistency. And you're kind of like, well, but, you know, I, this is the most important thing in the world and we're just kind of not going. And it made me think of when I was growing up, I did notice that there would be these moments. And it's just, it's, you know, just normal humans. It, it's tough to be a parent. I can only imagine because especially if you've got a child that's observant and that and that, because you're just a human being and human beings go through all sorts of inconsistencies and hypocrisies just as a result of being tired. I mean, life is tough. And especially if you've got, if you're carrying on a bunch of charades and facades and stuff, it's even, you know, and then you get a little kid watching you and they notice every single one, you know, but I remember that like, I would watch a process by which my stepmom would kind of try to figure out whether it was okay to not go to church today or not. Like there was this process that she, you know what I mean? Well, we didn't go last week or we didn't go last week or we're going to go next time or the rationalization. And, and as a kid, I was like, kind of like, okay, you're trying to figure out how to not go. And while I'm sitting over here being like, man, I hope I can stay home and play Nintendo today. Nintendo 64. I'm not yeah, old. That's uh, right. uh, but, uh, you know, and then you would see, oh, you know, she doesn't want to go either. At some level, there's a part of her that if she cannot feel bad, she wants to stay home because she has things that she wants to do too. That's interesting. And like, that was just informative to me about the reality of what was really transpiring here, right? Something other than what's on the surface, that there was actually you know, there were other considerations that were at play and like, you got to kind of log that. And then you begin to form, like you said about being an individual and understanding reality. You know, if you've got that black and white understanding of things, it's comforting and it's clean, but you know, it's not accurate. Right. And, 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 you know, not only is it not accurate, it is inaccurate in its claim to accuracy, which is to say that it's telling you that it's a more result, reliable map than it actually is. Whereas if you just kind of eschew the black and white and you just begin to infer things and observe things and allow certain patterns to emerge, you begin to get a more accurate sense for what's actually transpiring in reality. It may not be definite, may be hard to hammer down, hard to make a doctrine out of, but when you go interact with human beings, whether it's your mother, your mother-in-law, whether it's a police officer, whether it's someone on the news trying to you know, convince you that you have to do something, 
you really develop this ability. People call it sometimes intuition, right? To to sense the real the, the relevant reality that's transpiring in a given interpersonal interaction, and that's where a lot of the personal freedom that's associated with courage comes from. Because there's just a it's kind of funny. It's like a Christian thing. I know that I know, right? I know that I know that you're bullshitting me. I know that I know that there's a con game running here. Now, I don't need to know what the con game is, and I don't need you to know or understand or believe that I know what you're doing in order for me to know what you're doing and to act upon that insight. And so I think there is a tremendous reward for people who will let go of the illusion of knowing everything. You start to know a whole lot more than you did before. You, you know, you tap into those aspects of yourself that are able to just detect, nah, there's something kind of weird going on here. Yeah, I think even just being honest with yourself, like, you know what, there's maybe there's some things that are bullshit about this, but I like going because I meet people and I, you know, there's a, a cute girl that sits in the third pew and um, and I want to, you know, hang out and socialize or, or you know, maybe just have some peace once in a while. I, mm. there's, you know, what? there's like an element to that, too, that I could respect. You're like, hey, listen, I know there's other things out there. There's all these other religions. What are we? What are we? The, we're the only right ones. Everyone else isn't right. You know, sounds mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous, but. I'm choosing to do this for whatever reason, X, Y, and Z. Mm. If there was more of that, I could at least even get behind that personally. Yeah, that's a that's that's a cool person to me. That's probably a pretty mature person. I think a person who has the capacity to think that way, especially if they're thinking that way fairly consciously, if they even explain to you that that's kind of their thinking about it, that's a person who's likely to be reasonable in a lot of areas of life that are in no way connected to religion. That's a person who will be, you know, there's like a lot of people that will, you know, and this is kind of almost a rule in our relationship. Like sometimes, you know, Melissa will have a request of me that is somewhat sort of just personal or arbitrary, or maybe I have a request of her. It's like a little, just something I'd like for you to do. Would you mind doing it this way rather than that way? And if we'll come right out and say to each other, listen, I'm not saying the way you do it's wrong. I'm not even saying the way I'm asking you to do it's better. It's a preference thing for me. And if you can accommodate that preference without putting yourself out, like if you're just kind of going throughout your day wondering, huh, I wonder if there's something I could do at little to no cost to me. Isn't that, that's the as seen on TV, at little to no cost to you. Is that reverse mortgages? But anyway, like if there's something that I could do, it's kind of like, I could go left or right. I don't care one way or the other. Going right would make Melissa happy. So I'm going to go right here. Um, if we'll come out and say to each other, here's a little opportunity for you like that. The willingness of the other person to do it is huge. It's kind of like a no-brainer. It's kind of, yeah, of course I'll do that for you. It's nice to make that person happy. But when you when you have to pretend like you got a good reason for every single thing that you do, it psychologically incentivizes bullshitting yourself and other people. And a lot of the times I feel like when when we get feedback from other people that we don't want or we get non-compliance, oftentimes what we're what we're getting from them is we're getting a reaction to the bullshit. We're not even getting a reaction to the request. We're getting a reaction to the coercion. We're getting a reaction to the fact that we're not totally transparent in what the nature of our request is. And if I were more transparent, I'd get more of what I want because then the only thing on the table is the issue, you know? Yeah, that's a great point there. I feel like I could definitely take that, take some of that insight, um, especially when how I communicate occasionally in partnership with Sophie, you know, where I'm I'm just like, no, I know I have, this is the right way to do things as opposed to maybe communicating in a way like, listen, I know you have your way. And I have my way. This is a preference of mine. You know, even just saying that feels differently. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. It doesn't seem as like, well, you just, you're expecting a response of like, fuck you, whether it's vocal or if it's just happening internal in the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a wonderful freedom in that for me of, of if I consciously distinguish between, and the, the, the way I kind of describe the distinction is between preferences and prerequisites, right? Um, preferences, the way I'd like for things to be versus prerequisites for me being emotionally okay. You know, if it's not this way, we're going to have a problem. I'm going to suffer and pout at, at, at the least, and maybe I'll even start a fight. 
it is so freeing to have preferences because you can then go express those preferences to someone. And if they say, no, I'm not willing to do that, you don't have to feel a bad feeling. You don't have to have a bad feeling interaction with them. You just go, oh, okay. And, and, it, and it's, it's sometimes it's like sometimes you'll have preferences, but you'll treat them as though they're prerequisites. And then you'll, you'll, you'll almost come into it a little bit kind of intense with your partner or with whoever. And then they respond to the intensity. And you think that they're responding to the request. And it's like, if I went in, so much of this work, it's like even when it involves being nicer to your partner or being nicer to people or whatever, the, 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 the mechanism that generates that nicer behavior is the fact that there is a cooler, calmer, more peaceful experience of equanimity within you because of slight alterations of how you're representing ideas to yourself in your head. As, you know, I'd rather it be this way, but, you know, I don't even know if it's the best way. It, it feels good to carry those preferences around, whereas those prerequisites are a really heavy burden. And it's stressful because if I can't convince her that this is the way to do it, God, I'm going to have to be mad. God, she's going to have, I'm going to have to deal with her being mad at me. And it's a real pain in the ass. But if you just let it be as light and as easy as it is, it's like you get more of what you want and you suffer much less when you get something else. Yeah. So, Steve, do you want to share with our audience what some of your preferences are? <laughs> <laughs> God, that's, there's so let's many. Let's just of talk them. about our own preferences. You know, let's get back to the narcissist. Well, actually, my preferences are Stephen. Well, Joel, no, right, my right. preferences. Yeah, my preferences are when you when you text me back right away when I text you. I don't like. I prefer for you to not have your phone on. Do not disturb. Uh, actually, that's more of a prerequisite for me. As a matter of fact, I'm, I have an issue with you about that. You know, Joel just said that to me too, and I had to check it. I don't have it on my phone, but I have the do not disturb on my computer. Yeah, so. I just turned it off. There we go. Look it's at good, that. I'm, I'm texting you right now. I'm texting you right now about Joel. <laughs> about you're Osmos awesome. prefers we don't use we don't use his last name in the intro of the podcast. That's my preference. Yeah. Uh, you talking about my personal preference? Yeah, that's that's yeah. a preference of mine. Yeah. Certain reasons. I want to read a quote to you, Stephen, and I'll get you. I want to get your thoughts on it. <clears throat> it's a rand quote. She says, "A contradiction cannot exist." An atom is itself, and so is the universe. Neither can contradict its own identity, nor can a part contradict the whole. No concept man forms is valid unless he integrates it without contradiction into the total sum of his knowledge. In the, con in the context of religion, how does that quote land? I like it. Mm. Uh, I think it's good. It makes sense. Um, it's, a prefer, it's a preferred quote of his. It's a preference. It's a, yeah, yeah. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I think that, you know, what I'm hearing it and I'm thinking about things that kind of corresponds to like how I think about stuff, but that, that, it, that if this idea is a good one, if it's solid, that I want to have kind of a coherent worldview. Mm -hmm. I want to have a, I want to have a, co or if it's incoherent, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I want to be allowed to have inconsistencies, but I want to put a pin in that. I want to go, there's a, there's an inconsistency. There's a seeming inconsistency here. I want to revisit this later. I yeah. want to do my yearly review, my weekly review of, of things in my head that don't make sense or that, that, that do make sense in isolation. But then when I think about it in terms of this, then I become, you know, kind of a little bit of kind of shaky about that. And so that urge to reconcile seeming contradictions, I think is really healthy. And I, I, I think, you know, probably a willingness to discover that in fact, there is a certain incompatibility. That you know, I think what she's saying is that contradictions can't resist in reality. They can resist in your, they can exist in your mind. And yeah. so, if for example, I have five ideas that correspond to reality and one idea that doesn't, well, I'm very attached to all of them. And there's a contradiction that exists, but it's not between reality. It's between um, an idea I like and certain ideas that I also like, but that are real, and one that's not. And I do think that a willingness to overlook 
what do people do? They kind of just plaster over it and they kind of pretend like they're not there. And I feel like in order to do that, what do you have to do? It's almost like gouging your own eyes out so that you don't see that your bed's not made instead of just making your bed. And I think there's a tremendous cost that comes with that because in order to bullshit effectively, I have to not notice that I'm bullshit. And in order to not notice that I'm bullshitting, I have to dull the edge with my bullshit detector. And that bullshit detector is not just used for for detecting my own bullshit. It's used for detecting bullshit that comes from the outside too. That's right. And so it's this grotesque psychological self-harm that is expedient in the moment, but extremely costly over time. And I think that one of the things that Rand really encouraged, and I'm not an expert, but like the things that I've seen from her is that she really encourages a person, insists really that a person um, do the work to not be sloppy with their thinking and not be sloppy with their ideas and to not tolerate that sloppy thinking from anybody. How, how does this work, though? If Joel, we've had this conversation before about contradictions within your mind where I feel like the psyche is inherently, there's a compensatory nature within the psyche, which creates contradictions. The more you identify with a certain part of you, there might be an opposite that gets repressed or disowned or whatever the case may be. So how does one reconcile that? Do they do they hold hold both, have access or connect to both within themselves and ultimately I make think, the decision that's the most reasonable based I, on I, that? I, I think it's kind of a, a different kind of idea. Like that's, to me, that's a the whole compensatory nature of the psyche, to me, that's that's a reality of the psyche based on my own experience. I don't think that's a betrayal of reason in the way that Rand is putting it. What she's saying is if you develop a philosophical outlook or a view of reality that's based on fantasy or that's based on illusion that has no basis in reality, then you've betrayed your reason and then you've, you've, you've formed a contradiction in your concepts about your worldview. So you've betrayed yourself. And if you're lying to yourself... How can you? How can you really trust yourself to, to, to any degree? In terms of what you're saying, I think that's a that, that's a psychological reality. Yeah. And and self deception, as far as I can tell, is not a is not a perfectly controllable process. You know, it's kind of like you know, like the, they say, like the first time that they set off the some kind of atomic bomb or something like that, that that they didn't know if it was going to stop. I don't know if you've heard this, but when they did the right. first chain reaction, they were kind of like it might just keep going forever. Uh, and so they said, well, one way to find out, and they just did it. And I kind of feel like self-deception is a little bit like that. And you might start lying to yourself today and yeah. be able to extinguish it tomorrow. You might be able to go up into the San Bernardino Mountains and throw a match down and start a fire and put it out. Or you might not. A gust of wind at the right time. Life gets very stressful. Maybe you deceive yourself in a way that is useful in the moment. It allows you to make a lot of friends and become very successful and popular. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive psychological incentive to continue it. You may lose control of that process forever, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 so I, I did, and that's one of those things for me. And it's never um, kind of coming back to. It, I just realized that your question was how does that how does that Rand quote relate to the religion. Um, I was never willing to betray myself in order to fit in or in order to incorporate. I was not willing to like unhinge my jaw to absorb a yeah. bolus of idea that wouldn't fit in naturally. This religion thing did not go in for me. I'm I, I'm I'm not going to blend it up and take it in through a straw. I, I, my objective is not to get this idea into my psyche by any means necessary. I'm not going to turn against myself. The, like the the fact that it didn't make any fucking sense to me was really significant to me. That mattered. It meant something that you were, I'm here. This isn't lining up for me. It's not resonating. And I think that that has to be very important to a person because a lot of people, I feel like they get that feeling inside. They go, man, I don't really know about this. It doesn't really quite seem to line up for me. And they get really good at paving over it. 
You know, and it's like one of those old speed bumps. He gets really worn down. And he's going to pave over it. And it's just a little bump in the road. And it's kind of like, no, either somebody is going to assist me in figuring out why this feeling that this doesn't make sense is, is not founded and thereby help me to create a feeling that it does make sense. Or I'm going to walk away from this. And I'm going to walk away from whoever and whatever I have to walk away from because I'm not willing to betray myself, which I think is kind of what Rand was getting at, is that it's a betrayal of reason, which I think right. from her perspective, that, that's you. Um, your capacity to distinguish psychological poison from psychological nutrition um, is pretty important. And there's no nutrition in the world. There's no candy in the world. There's no reward in the world, right, that's worth compromising your ability to distinguish nutrient from anti-nutrient, you know? That's right. But, and this is, so coming back, do you think the individual who truly trusts themselves, who trusts their worldview, who has a true selfhood with a capital S is going to fall for these ideas? They're not. So most of the time, back to the, back to, um, circling back to the narcissism discussion, these individuals are people who have never trusted themselves. And these are ultimately the victims of the narcissist. People who do not trust yeah. themselves, who do not have a coherent worldview. Who, whose own, who, whose own thoughts, ideas, beliefs, and philosophies have led them to self-love, have led them to success, have led them to fulfillment, have led them to contentment. They're going to be far more wary and shielded against these ideas than the individual who is desperately grasping and seeking for someone to show them the answers of life. Yeah, and I also think a person who has gone through, let's say, their personal journey, they've done a certain level of work, they've integrated repressed aspects, use the term shadow work they're more likely to see this than another. Like yeah. they, if they know the part of them that can hustle someone, that can be shady, that can say, do fucked up shit, they're going to sniff it out. And, you know, it's something that I've experienced in my life. Like, I feel like I'm really in touch with the, let's quote unquote, the dark side or, or psychological elements that aren't as, um, let's say beneficial. But because of that and not choosing to behave from them most of the time, um, I, you can see it in others and you right away, you're like red flag, red flag, fuck you. I'm, I'm not buying what you're selling. You know, go knock on someone else's fucking door. Yeah. It's people who need to be yeah. saved, man. They want someone to see a miracle in them. They want someone to see value in them because they're not seeing them in themselves. So they're constantly waiting for that, that thing at the door to be like, ta-da, right? This is what yeah. life's about. You're the special, you're chosen. This is, you're part of the truth, right? Right. That's, yeah. But to the individual who's truly in love with their own life, their own potential, their own journey, it's like, no, fuck you, man. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the narcissistic parent thing, I think, is probably like the original trust the experts. But it's like trust the expert about everything. And it, it is kind of interesting that we're kind of coming back around to that, like the child, the infant. And, you know, it, it, there, there, there are certain, again, there are certain areas where it makes sense. Trust me, you don't want to stick your finger in that outlet. Trust me, you don't want to go play in the street. Trust me, you don't want to put that plastic bag over your head, you know, and let me explain to you why. But when it starts getting to the zone of, trust me, that feeling is not right. Trust me, that opinion. I mean, it, your behavior may be inappropriate, but the fact that you don't want to be in the restaurant is not wrong. It just is. You know, you're expressing it in a way that's going to maybe cause you problems. But that attempt to, again, it sort of control the mind of the individual and to prohibit certain things. And something that's kind of interesting, like you said, about wanting someone to say, oh, you're chosen, you're special, you're whatever. It's such a, it's such a scam yeah. because at the end of the day, it is them saying, oh, I am okay. I am worthy. I am special. They just have this arbitrary criterion installed before they're allowed to decide that they're okay, which is somebody else telling them that they are. They decide that if someone else tells them that they're good, that that means that they're good. You're still deciding. Ultimately, you're always deciding. 
It's just how much are you bullshitting yourself and pretending that God or some authority figure is deciding? Because you're going to decide who that authority figure or who that God's going to be for you, and you're going to get the approval or not. But if you do, you're going to go, okay, I got the approval from who I decided was the one I had to get the approval from, and that means I have decided it's time for me to feel good or to feel better or to feel superior or whatever. It's still you. Stop playing like it's not you. This is, I mean, people get really kind of, you know, jealous and resentful of the freedom of other people, and they accuse them of being selfish when those other people are doing the same things that they're doing, but they're not having to pay that self-deception tax of laundering their own approval through other organizations, imaginary entities, real entities, real people, whoever. They go, you can't just approve of yourself. You've got to take that approval of yourself, impose a bunch of arbitrary preconditions on you, and then allow other people to hand it back to you and you know, launder it through other people in order for it to be legitimate validation. It's just kind of like, why? I, I'm I'm mailing it to you so you can mail it back to me. That seems dumb. I'm just going to enjoy it myself, you know? Yeah, yeah cut out the fucking middleman. Cut yeah, him, who doesn't like that? Out. The middleman doesn't like that. And you know who the middleman is? Narcissists who get a lot of validation from having other people launder their approval through. And that's the thing for me. I have no sympathy for these people. You're fucking out of luck. You're out of a job. I guess you're going to have to find something different to do with your life instead of lording your disapproval over your daughter. Sorry, ma'am, you're 67 and you didn't think you're going to have to start doing things differently because you thought they were going to let you do this bullshit until you died. Guess what? Not the case. That's an opportunity for that lady to learn how to live in a different way. That is not a mean thing. That if other people, this is one of those things to me too. It drives me absolutely crazy. You got to watch out for this because it's a trap. And I get a little, I get a little riled up about this because it frustrates me when people understand this stuff and then they start going, "Oh, but I just feel so bad for her." No, don't feel bad for her. That's her business. That's her responsibility. You had to peel the yoke of her mind control off of your back or his mind control or whatever. A lot of narcissistic moms in the group, and that's why her is what's coming up for me. And the thing is, it's not your job to spare somebody else from the personal consequences of your waking up enough that you don't take their bullshit anymore. That's not your job. It's not your responsibility. And if you attempt to assume that responsibility, I really think you have to recognize it's actually an attempt on your part to evade what your responsibility really is. Every attempt to assume responsibility for something that's not my responsibility is an attempt on my part, however unconscious it may be, to evade responsibility for something for which I actually am responsible. Now, if you want to kind of do a self-conviction exercise, that's it. Oh, but I'm worried about how they're going to feel. You stop yourself and point at yourself and say, bullshit. I am trying to take responsibility for their experience as a way of avoiding taking full responsibility for mine. That's really what's happening here. And you, you know, you can, there's a fresh new freedom that's involved there and it opens the door doesn't guarantee it but it does open the door lay the foundation fulfill the prerequisites for an actual meaningful fulfilling relationship with that person doesn't mean it's going to happen but it does have to happen before that real relationship is even possible 100 percent, man 100 percent. and you know the highest act of love to me is, is the act of truth so there's no guilt associated with that mm -hmm. that's right because because nobody, as far as I can tell, nobody deserves to, I mean, think of how demeaning it would be for you to deceive me in order for me to feel good. Like if I could zoom out from that and see Joel and Yurasa is actually hate me and think I'm an idiot. And they're just having me on the podcast because they you feel something bro to me. Yeah. No, I you accidentally put it in the group chat. Yeah, so <laughs> it was. And I cried for three hours before we came on. Uh, but, you know, I would rather you guys have nothing to do with me than to associate with me because you're afraid I'd have my feelings hurt. In fact, I would argue I deserve the respect of simply being ignored by you if you don't like me rather than being deceived 
and lied to. It's kind of like what man wants to be with a woman, no matter how into her he might be, who is with him, him because she feels sorry for him or is afraid he'd be really sad if she left. It's like that guy deserves a better role in people's lives mm. than being the pity person, you know, that people do things for because they feel sorry for him. And so really, even if the person doesn't recognize that you're doing them a service, that you're 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 actually honoring them and respecting them by being willing to be yourself, even though you know they may not like it. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to give that person an opportunity to encounter reality and respond to it resourcefully. Whether they respond to it resourcefully or not, I got no control over that. I respect them enough, though, to afford, to just do me in a way that just, and let me allow them to respond to me being who I am in whatever way they see fit. That's yeah. their business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, these are some foundational tenets of of altruism as well, man, where you're sacrificing yourself just so what's another person feels good about themselves so you don't hurt someone's feelings. And, you know, I I, I always find getting to the truth and being uh, um, as clear with your communication is going to serve the person the best, you know, even if they don't like it, even if they come at you. But this is where, um, you know, having some nuance, not even nuance, but just knowing how to communicate is going to support you as well. Because you can say something to someone and how it comes out and who in you says it is going to determine a lot of the interaction as well, uh, I find. Yeah. yeah, that's a learned skill. But it's, it's a yeah. skkill that you learn through the process, right? You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to start somewhere. Sometimes yes. it might start very blunt, you know, before you can actually gather the correct confidence and attitudinal qualities to, to present that properly. And yeah. there's a often, lot of... Yeah. I think often it does start messy because for many yeah. people that haven't been able to set boundaries, that haven't been able to assert themselves, that haven't been able to com communicate their needs that everything's getting pushed under the rug, under the rug, under the rug, under the rug. And then one day, I don't know, maybe they see a therapist or they read a book or, or something happens. And then it's just like, don't you fucking talk to me that way. Yeah, My whole right. life you've been doing this to me, whatever. Yeah. And then it's like, oh shit. And then, yeah. you know, there needs to be some, maybe a reconciliation or maybe there's a separation for a while. Maybe then there's communication down the road, but over time, you learn to be able to communicate or to step into this part of yourself even more where you can just pretty simply and easily be like, hey, listen, this doesn't work for me. You know, you won't talk to me this way. You won't. If you want to continue having this relationship with me, um, I expect a certain kind of uh, a different kind of treatment. And if you can't honor that, then we're no longer going to have a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm OK with that. Yeah. Right. You know, and that's. And 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 and, and I'm not even okay with that because you aren't more important to me than than you are. I'm okay with that because of the relationship that I have to myself and the relationship and the loyalty that I have to what works and and my refusal to engage in things that aren't worthwhile that don't make sense and that don't work for me. There's not an amount that I could love you that would make me be willing to do things that are nonsensical and counterproductive to both of us in perpetuity because that's not a manifestation of love anyway, you know. And I mean, I think when people do act out and they go overboard or whatever, that's not because they're standing up for themselves like you said. It's because for 30 years they haven't stood up for themselves. And and the trail also of self and this is one of those, yeah. Yeah. And, and also, guess what? You raise that person in an environment in which they had to justify every single thing that they thought, felt, or did, especially if it was contrary to what you wanted them to think, feel, and do. And so a lot of the times when they start finding fault with you and they go, oh, I did the best I can, and you're just telling me all these bad things, guess what? They have, you installed in their mind a program that obliges them to rationalize every feeling that they have. And if their feeling is that they hate you or that you were terribly abusive, guess what? They've got to look at what you did and figure out why they feel the way that they do. They don't like it when it gets turned back on them a lot of the times. A lot of the times, 
when there's stress in a parent-child relationship, it's because the child is mirroring back to the parent the reasoning strategies that the child developed under the influence of the parent's demands. You know, and then there's this situation involved where like they don't they don't want to be confronted by it. You know, I, I think that a lot of the times a person's reaction to your confrontation or to your statement or whatever will will validate your confrontation or your statement. And, you know, if if a child flips out at a parent and is very upset with them, especially if it's an adult child, you know, relating something about an abusive uh, something that went on, if the parent's first response is to justify themselves or defend themselves or whatever, it's like you're not even curious about the fact that your child feels this way. Like that tells me something that, that, that there's something not right about that. Like, like even if the child is off base or disturbed in some way, you know, where their experience is not really consistent with the reality of the childhood. Aren't you interested in the fact that they've managed to create that experience now? You're not curious about that at all. Like, if you're not curious about that, I bet you weren't curious about how they felt when they were growing up, which is probably exactly why we are kind of, you know, where we are. And so even if a person overreacts, that overreaction, I think, can be useful because if you're dealing with a basically decent person who's interested in the relationship, they may be taken aback and they may be a little offended or defensive or whatever. But ultimately, they'll go, listen, you know, I, you're upset and all this, but I really want to understand what's going on here. And if they don't express that interest, that tells you a lot of that that's not good for the prognosis. Do you know what I mean? Like that person's not capable of being interested in the reality of what's going on because they're so busy building a case for why they're not to blame for whatever it is you're feeling. Yeah, that's right. And that that person generally tries to leverage by a feeling of my hurt is worse than your hurt. My pain is yep. more than your pain. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's how they keep the relationship at bay. It's like, you know, how can anything be wrong with me? Don't you know what I've been through? Don't you know what I've experienced? Don't you know what I had to endure? Like, what you're coming to me it doesn't matter in light of that. Play the right. martyr. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally for me, because I'm a narcissist and I'm going to bring this back to me and we're going to talk about myself right now, is that... um. Like I, I actually appreciate it in friendship or in relationship where someone like is triggered or goes off and like shares something. Let's say I'm I'm just being me in certain ways and like, you know, Sophie, Sophie just like over time maybe builds up, builds up, and then she just like has to share something in like a an aggressive way. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Now okay, I can take this in now and let me see what went on. And it's more real to me, you know, because sometimes you're just when you're in these patterns, you're just living your life, you're doing your thing. And unless someone sets a boundary, unless someone asserts themselves and communicates, say, hey, listen, why are you fucking doing this thing? I don't like yeah. it. You just, you, sometimes you're, you know, you're, you're doing it. You just, you keep doing it because no one's telling you it's a problem, you know, and you think it's fine because you don't seem to have a problem with it and you're not voicing it. You know what I mean? Yes, there's times where I go, oh shit, maybe I should do things differently. But there are those moments where you need to have those conflicts. You need to have those interactions. So then you can sit there and if you're a person that's, curious about personal growth if you're a person that's a person that's curious about um being a better person you can look into that and you can be curious about it oh wow i she's feeling this way that's interesting or my friend's feeling this way let me take a look at what's going on if you're that kind of person or you're going to be someone like what joel says where you're going to go into victim i can't believe you're talking to me that way Uh, everything i've done for you i've been such a good friend (laughs) and all those phone calls yeah yeah that's and it's one of those things too where you, you you don't have to come to a definitive conclusion about what every confrontation or disagreement or little tiff means. You know, like, you know this. You know, I, what I'll do typically is I'll I'm okay. This is how you feel. Interesting. I'm surprised. Sometimes you're not surprised. Sometimes maybe you didn't think they were, but when they explain it to you, you go, well, I can see where you maybe felt that way. Whatever. Yeah. You're just kind of gathering information, and but then you can also assess them over time. So let's say there's five separate, because, you know, you might have an intuition that goes, I wasn't really doing anything. I think you were in a bad mood. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But if you check it out over five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different events, you can look at what's the same and what's different. 
And a lot of the times, you know, you'll find that there was something maybe you were up to. I have found though, a lot of the times what's the same, I was doing really well. I was feeling I was feeling better than normal. We were performing better than we usually were. I've seen this in romantic relationships. I've seen this in friend relationships, business relationships. You know what's common among all these things? Things were going too well. Something really great just happened or something big and important was about to happen. And sometimes there are, you know, if you want to call it self-sabotage, it's just a, for me, it's just criteria for messing things up. Um, you know, something inside lets you know it's time to throw a wrench in the gears. We have to maintain equilibrium. We're getting close to triggering some threshold that's going to result in an up level of some kind. We're going to establish a new baseline. We're going to raise the floor. And if yeah. we don't mess it up fast, we're going to be in unfamiliar territory. Now, if you start looking at stuff like that, you'll see it in yourself, you'll see it in your partner. Um, that's really interesting. And especially if you, and if you have if you have the kind of relationship, you know, whatever kind of relationship it is, where there is this kind of no-fault ability to recognize, I think I might be becoming aware of something that's happening. And I think some of what might be happening might be happening in you. And let me tell you what I think it is, and let me tell you how I think it's happening. Now, I'm not telling you I'm sure that this is what's going on. I'm not telling you that I'm not playing a part in it. I'm not telling you that it's your fault. I'm not blaming you for it. But I think that there is something transpiring through both of us. And here's part of it that I think might be going on in you. That's extremely useful. Melissa and I used to have terrible problems anytime we start making money. Anytime we start making more money than we normally did, we'd have to start fighting about stuff. We'd have, like it, it was like clockwork or if there was something really big and important or if like, you know, we hadn't made a video advertising our stuff. And we're like, OK, tonight, tonight we're going to make that video. There'd be a big fight at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And of course, part of it's kind of like, Jesus, you know what frauds we are we're doing this personal growth stuff. And here we're having a huge fight. But the smart parts, so that's the bullshit pattern part. Right. Oh, and there's something kind of what is it? There's something kind of like involuted narcissistic about that. Oh, there's something so wrong with me. I shouldn't even be doing this. It's like it's self-indulgent, disgusting stuff when you get away from it. But what the smart part says is, isn't this interesting that you knew to have a fight on this afternoon when you were about to do this thing? Some part of us knew if we had a big enough fight, we wouldn't do the video. So we wouldn't take a step in the direction of success. Or if we did do the video, we could kind of feel like fakes because we had that fight before. You know, all this different stuff. Or, oh, we made a bunch of money. And so now that we made that money, let's create a problem in our relationship because we've got to have a certain amount of suffering and misery and hating each other going on. And if we can't stress about bills, well, we can get really worried about nothing over here. And like when we both got to the point where we could both recognize this thing that seems so huge and important now, if we hadn't just made a bunch of money or hadn't just accomplished success or hadn't just resolved some big potential issue, this would not have been the nucleus of a problem or the catalyst for a problem. Like this is a problem because of the fact that we're doing well. Some part of both of us is trying desperately. You know, and a lot of times I would say, like even if Melissa would start the fight, there would be a part of me that wanted to use the fact that she started the fight as the reason it was all ruined. And it was when I started to, because for a long time, I was kind of like, you know, you're, you're starting these fights. I mean, I, this is happening, but it's you that's starting these fights. And it's when I started to see, there's a part of me that's really fucking eager to use the fact that she started it as the reason it's all ruined. And I was kind of like, okay, so that's my role in this particular thing. And it's not a lesser role. It's about a 50-50. And when we got so that we could both talk about that, there is a process that's occurring. I'm not doing it. You're not doing it. It is occurring and it's occurring partially through me and partially through you. And it's affecting both of us. We got so that we could start talking about almost like a third entity in the room, like not mm -hmm. literally, but functionally, it's like a demon in the room. It's like there is a third presence in the room. Um, when we got so that we could talk about that, we could start addressing it without her having to punch me in the face to hit what was in my mind or me having to, you know, metaphorically punch her and that when neither of us actually ever punch each other in the face, but attack each other in order to get at that pattern. And I think a lot of the times in relationships, 
Like you have an accurate insight. There is something effed up that's going on and it is happening through your partner some of the time and you want to get at that thing. But when you try to get at that thing, you don't tell them, hey, I think there's something going on. I want to try to get at it. You just start kind of clawing at them, you know, and they feel very attacked by that. That's a huge diversion. It's like if you can create an environment where you can run diagnostic tests on what's happening. I don't know what you did wrong, but I did wrong what the fuck is going on here? I love you. You love me. I mean, I know you guys love each other and tell each other all the time. I mean, it's great. But like, you know, I, we want to create the same thing. We want, we, we have a shared objective and yet we're both ready to fight each other right now. Isn't that kind of odd? Should we take a second and look at this before we really start tearing into each other to see if maybe not there's something suspicious going on? You love me too. Thank you. I'm glad you said that because I was going to get mad if you didn't. <laughs> we got a really interesting chat going on here that the, the viewers will never know anything about, right? I'm going to all they, all I know is that I love you too, and that's the most important. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head so there, important. man. You hit the nail on the head there, and and you also talk about something that makes important is that I think in the personal growth sphere, and you know, people who lead courses and programs and all that, it's like I think it's important to mention these things. Like, hey, we're we're dealing with shit. We we don't just have this like perfectly crafted image of me as an individual and us as a partnership and we're all great and we wear long flowy robes and you know um whatever all that other stuff and it's like no we're real like we're we're doing the work we're doing the work and then we're sharing uh what it's like to be in partnership experiencing this so hopefully you can gain some benefit of it as well you know like yeah do does, do my wife and I get into fights all the time no we don't we have a pretty good relationship but occasionally you know there are some blow ups and i'm mm -hmm. grateful for them i'm one of those people that loves like when shit gets juicy i'm like Oh yeah, cool. What can we what can I learn from this? Like how can I get more insight on my behavior? How will you learn from it? Like I'm pretty good at processing things quickly, you know, such process a, things quickly. Yeah, narcissist. <laughs> narcissist, bro. That's it. I mean, there's other things obviously that are are not um part of my skill set, but in that regards, I enjoy it, you know, and I actually encourage it. I I want people to be upfront with me, you know? Yeah. If I'm being yeah, a dick, yeah. tell me I'm a dick. If I'm being selfish or if I'm being selfish in like the negative way, or if, if, if I'm being an asshole, um, tell me, you know, yeah, it might, yeah. I might have that moment of like, Ooh, Oh, okay. There might be a part of me that comes in. It's related to like my youth when I was criticized or something, but like, you know, it doesn't control me. It doesn't own me. And then I could go, oh, okay, that's, that's good. And plus there's, there's, there's benefits that can come from shame too. It's like, it can, you feel shame and it's like guides you to like, Oh, maybe I should, I need to make a different decision next time. Or maybe I need to behave differently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And as long as you, as long as you use it as a, something to fuel you and not something to wallow in every day, yeah. that's a mistake. You know, the, but, and, and even too, like you said, like there's a part of you that's maybe, you know, uh, something from your youth that kind of makes it sting or something because it's associated with a wound or something from the past. That can even be useful because you can go, oh man, I got the capacity to get, I get old emotional stuff activated by something here. That's useful information for me to be apprised of anew to go, oh, I'm still capable of creating that old feeling in response to a relatively benign present moment thing. That's just information. I mean, I'm always just, I'm thankful for information. I'm grateful for that. Oh, I know that I have the capacity to do this. This is one of the things that was, I thought of today was like, rather than being disappointed in people, be grateful for the fact that you have updated information about what they're capable of doing. Yep. Like, you know, instead of being like, oh, I'm so disappointed in this. It's like, no, it's useful for me to know that a per that you are capable of doing, not doing whatever that thing is. That's If you say that, it could be kind of a shitty thing to say to them, but it really is simply you're a great person and I love you and you love me and you're still capable of making this mistake. That's I, as a human being, whose primary function is to interface with and deal with and respond to reality. 
that information is going to equip me to deal with reality moving forward. And if I'm really in touch with my resources, you know, I have the ability to recognize the usefulness of that. And, you know, in terms of having, you know, fights with your, your partner or whatever, to me, it's like, it, it's, it's not about never, it, the smart, getting smarter doesn't inhibit your capacity to be stupid, right? It increases your capacity to be smarter. So I'm, I'm, if, if I were trying to keep myself from ever being capable of being stupid, I'd have a very hopeless and unfulfilling journey. If I'm increasing my capacity to be and to exhibit intelligence, I'm going to have a lot more fun. And, and to and to access that resource of intelligence and creativity more of the time. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to reach into the grab bag of me and draw out a little bit of stupid. It's just that the more intelligence I put in there, the less likely I'm going to draw out one of the red marbles or whatever it is, you know. And so having, see, see, here we go. I, it's on do not disturb. I don't understand. Um, see, that's, what, that's what happened when you talk shit to me, man. This is what happens. You know, you talk shit it's to on me about to, my dad. What's the point? What's the point of do not disturb if the computer disturbs you? I don't understand. Um, but you see how I'm modulating and accepting it? I'm not emotionally. Um, I am a little confused about that, though, Tim Apple. I'd like to know. Uh, but uh, Send like, the report. You, send the report. I wonder what those all those send reports you know, do. Like I, I always, All on. these years, I press like my notes crashes or something, and I send a report. Like, where does it go? Who looks right. at, at it? Does anyone look you at it? Little, Did they even fix it? Did you put a little essay in about how inconvenient it was for you and how it ruined something and then like push the button real hard when you send it? You can add comments to it. I just pressed this in the report button. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Well, they anyways. probably don't care what you think. So. Uh, anyways, you were saying uh, something very brilliant before the do not disturb thing uh, interrupted. Yeah. Well, it was actually a text from Melissa. So I'm going to be irate with her when she comes home and completely violate all these principles. Um, that, um, <laughs> that like... I have to have I have to have permission to do dumb things. I have to have permission to make mistakes. It has to be psychologically because if I don't have permission to violate principles, that lack of permission is not going to prevent me from violating those principles. It's going to psychologically incentivize my pretending that I didn't violate the principles when I did. In other words, bullshitting myself, deceiving myself. The more I give myself permission to make a given mistake, the less I have to make that mistake, the freer I am to actually do the smarter thing instead. And so as you're developing your ability to make better choices, the name of the game is not making it so that you never make bad choices. I mean, people, I made a mistake. I raised my voice. I used that mean tone of voice with my kids. I didn't work out, whatever. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's not relevant. What we're doing is increasing. I mean, that's like watching the stock market, you know, watch the little ups and downs. You know, people who are like into crypto sometimes, they're like literally their whole worldview of whether they're like the most successful person in the world or the most depressed person in the world is like, what did Dogecoin do today? Like, especially when there's like a sort of Perry bull run thing going on. And it's like watching your own personal development is the same thing. It's stupid. What does Warren Buffett do? He's looking at big trends for the most part. And so when you're looking at yourself and your progress and your growth, a shitty day, a shitty week, a, a bad interaction with your partner, I mean, a bad month where you can't do anything right and nothing good happens and you neglect all your best practices, a month seems like eternity when it comes to your self-concept. But in the big trajectory of your life, it's nothing. And if you can look at it and you can go, this trend is nothing assuming it begins to correct itself soon. And I think it's probably going to. As soon as you say that to yourself, the trend is correcting because that's a resourceful, intelligent response to some negative feedback that would be very easy to respond unresourcefully to. Stuff starts to get a lot better, a lot faster. And so like, like uh, it's so exhausting to have this stupid rule where you pretend like you have all this stuff mastered or you imply that you're perfect or you imply that you don't have any problems. From the, I'm too lazy to do that. Like it's nothing to do with me wanting to be honest or transparent. I don't care enough to pretend like I have it together. I I, I, mean, I tried it for like five seconds. It was like a lifetime of this. No, thank you. Let me come right out of the gate and go, listen, I'm not the nicest guy that you're ever going to meet probably. I, I'm, I'm not going to like use the most flower language to describe this stuff. I have some ideas you might find useful. 
Now, I'm better at using these ideas than I used to be. I'm not as good as I'm probably going to be tomorrow. You know, you you will see me violate best practices that I put in my stories today, tomorrow on Instagram. I'm going to talk about relevant, changeable, positive in my Instagram story today. And it's true. It's good to focus on things that are relevant, changeable, and positive. And then tomorrow, you're going to see me go on a 40-slide tirade about something in culture that probably doesn't affect me that much. I will deviate from that principle. I'm not saying I don't. I'm not saying I shouldn't. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying, in general, my life is better when I adhere to these things. And when, if I deviate from these principles, I am consciously aware of the fact that I'm doing it. I'm going to go off-roading. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to take my car off-road and I'm going to get dirty and I'm going to hit bumps and probably screw something up. Now, that's one thing. Another thing is falling asleep at the wheel and ending up in a ditch. And my thing is like, do what you're doing more consciously and with more awareness so that you can choose to course correct when it's the appropriate thing to do. Nothing in that about being perfect. There's nothing even in that about being good. It's just about paying attention to what you're doing and noticing relationships and responding resourcefully in ways that can like improve the quality of your experience, you know? No pretending required. Yeah. For anyone watching this, if you don't follow Steven on Instagram, you can follow him at What's your what's your Instagram Instagram handle again? Steven Robinson. My name. Just your yeah. name. Yeah. At Steven Robinson. Yeah. His stories are amazing. Sometimes I can't get through them because I'm busy doing other things. But there are times where I do. There's nuggets of wisdom. There's humor. There's good insight. So, um, yeah, thank you for that, man. It's, I definitely enjoy um, what you offer in that regards. Yeah, and also for those listening, the the Melissa he's constantly referencing is Dr. Melissa Sell, who's a three time guest of our podcast. We won't tell her that you metaphorically punched her in the head. Um, leave that between us. No, I think actually what I said, I think I actually, I made it clear that she didn't punch me in the head. Oh, <laughs> um, and also, Stephen, um, in case you didn't know, your Asmos and I are the only people allowed to wear green on our podcast. Yeah. Oh, is that, is that true? Yeah. We, we um, you didn't see that in the email that we sent to you. <laughs> No, I didn't even read it. I didn't even open it. Um, well, it's funny because I actually had a gray shirt on right before this, but it kind of looked wrinkly. And so I wore this one, which I actually wore yesterday. Uh, but then I saw it and it's like, ah, it's in pretty good shape. I'm going to wear that one instead. So you wore a dirty, a second a second day t-shirt on our sure podcast? Yeah. Just for yeah, looks? Wow. I'm just, yeah. Just for looks. Just for how it looked. Did you do like a, and a, I don't like even... a, a three hour kettlebell uh, workout wearing that yesterday? No, no, no. Just no he like, did that just before he came on. <laughs> right, right, right. You're real pumped. Yeah, you are looking at a little extra pumped today, dude. Did you do a workout this morning? No, no, yes, I did, but don't lie to me because I, I've been none well, and so I haven't worked out as much as I have. So I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I didn't. Uh, I, I decided to disclose the fact that I wore the shirt because I don't even respect you guys not to lie to you. I'm so narcissistic that I just kind of come right out and share this irrelevant crap. And it's just it's just a way of asserting dominance. It's like this is all so much about me that I'm gonna like say things that no normal person would ever say in any situation, let alone on a podcast. Dude, I have 14 of these, the same exact shirt, same color, 14 of them, just in case anyone that watches the podcast that sees me in this all the time, then I'm not pulling Steven. Okay, I'm actually wearing. I think a new we look one. nice. What'd you say? <laughs> I think we all look nice. I think I think it's good. I think so too. You know, I like Joel's hat. And I think they, it, they don't have that. That color yeah. doesn't come doesn't get delivered to the U.S. though, or else I'd have it too. And we, we were we'd be wearing matching hats. Although I don't like I, the, why you, I don't like the curve. What what is that called? The baseball cap. I like a, the a more frame. a frame. I like the more flat mm. flat ones. You know. Should I have a hat? I should have a hat. I've never seen you wear a hat. I don't know if you're like a hat wearing kind of guy. And I actually never was a hat wearing person in my life until we started this podcast because it gave me the opportunity to just like 
you know, roll, like be doing a bunch of stuff or not roll out of bed because we record late. But like, let's say I wake up and I'm working outside. I'm doing a bunch of things. I don't have to like go and fix my hair. I can just put on a hat, you know, so it allows mm. me to manage time a little bit better. Your hair looks pretty fucked up underneath the hat, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's a little crazy right now. Hey, everybody. It's just going. Happy Thursday. That's a busy man's hair. That's all. Yeah. Dude, we the, the the amount of um rains and storms that we've had and I don't know how it is by you but up here has been insane. It, last night didn't even compare to New Year's New Year's New Year's Eve or whatever that was. It was it was wild. Anyways, I want everyone Tonight, to know about the weather in Topanga, okay? Cuz my yeah. experience of the weather is more important than whatever other knowledge that you're going to get in, on this podcast. Right, it's the middle of summer right here in Sydney. It's torrential right now. No one cares about huh. the weather, bro. You're moving to Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? What's that? What's like the what are you in Canada? But um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it's it's been it's been raining here too uh, a ton, and I actually really like it. Um, like winter in Los Angeles, I gotta say, is pretty fantastic. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, well, I know you like cooler weather, you know. So it's definitely it's not cold where you're like having to shovel lots of snow, but it's yeah, you know, it gets cold at night, especially in in our our, our area, our neck of the woods. You know, you can get into the in the forties in the evenings. Guys, welcome to the, the new version of Here for the Truth podcast in 2023. We'll be doing a weather report at the end of every episode. That's about uh, 54 degrees. We're uh, coming up on some uh, partly cloudy skies. You gotta do. You gotta do the like. You gotta do like the weather person, like the the green screen, like the wave of. And we have a little uh, cold front coming down here in the left. Anyways, um, awesome. I think we've we've got a good amount of time. But dude, let us know some things that are going on. I know you got another awareness school starting up. If you want to talk about that, what that is. Yeah, just talk yeah, about yourself so again for a bit. Yeah, talk about yourself. Well, more. you know, <laughs> the thing I find most interesting about me. Uh, so we're doing, uh, we have this really great, it's 10 weeks um, group coaching where we go through this thing. It's this enormous course called the Ever Better Life Course. And there's this 10-week program where we guide you through it. And we call that that whole big thing awareness school. So we're entering into our fifth class of it. Um, it's a lot of fun. We spend, people get tons of one-on-one time group coaching. There's a telegram group where we're just kind of, you're sharing, you know, thing, experiences you're having with the material, problems that you're having, insights, whatever. Uh, a lot of the meetings consist of people basically getting personal coaching in a group context and people love it. And it's this nice group environment. People learn from each other and they become friends and all this really nice stuff. We've got a number of people who are retaking it from previous classes. Um, and it's just like, like we, we have so much fun doing this. We're having so much fun doing it that we're continually decreasing the amount of time in between classes. So we got, I think probably the info page is going to be up today. Um, we're going to do like a little early enrollment special. I'm pretty sure it's the 26th is when, when it starts up, we're going to be meeting on Monday, um, awareness 23rd. So Monday, the 23rd is when the classes start. Um, we meet on Mondays, 5 PM Pacific time. Um, yeah, it's just pretty fantastic. I mean, all the stuff that I was talking about with the narcissism and all that, that's information that came up in the group setting. So as we're talking about basic mindset principles, people start sharing specific life events that make it hard for them or that they've struggled with historically or whatever. Um, and then we end up breaking things down. A number of people, I think, have a completely different outlook on life. Um, we've had and people who are really familiar with personal growth, too. We had a psychiatrist in our last in our last group. She said that it was more powerful and useful than anything she even learned in school, which I thought was really neat. We had a master NLP trainer who and a lot of the stuff that we go through are concepts and things that she's familiar with. Um, but she was still learning applications that were super useful for her, too. Also, a number of people who have never taken the courses before were there. So it's a great mix of people. Tons 
of fun, lots of interaction. Um, we we pretty much are like obsessed with helping people grasp this information. So if you if you like kind of the general way that I was describing things, I think I alluded to some of the principles that we talk about in the course. It's just 10 weeks of intensely that all the time, specifically tailored to you and the stuff that you're dealing with. So you're on mute, bro. You're on mute. I was on mute. And if you and if you don't want to uh, watch Steven while he's wearing a dirty t-shirt, we have a group coaching program. <laughs> we have a group coaching program. It's called Rise Mother. Listen, no. I wear I, I wear clean clothes when I'm doing my uh my, my paid courses. I put on clean clothes. I have to just be honest, that's why I went off videos because we made a joke about that of just like, oh well, we'll pitch our course right after it. And then I couldn't stop laughing. So I just have to be transparent. Anyone who's watching this, why I went off, why I went off. Uh, on video, but everyone, yeah, needs all, every, everyone needs all of us because the thing is, you know, I mean, as great as I am, you know, and as great as you are, which is almost as great as that, and Joel's great too. I imagine all that greatness. All I mean, imagine if you just did them all at the same time. I one agree. No, but this is the thing too that is just like I think some people, even in 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 our field, it's like there's like ownership. Oh no, they can't talk about their program because we have a program, and it's like. Who cares? We're all doing cool shit. And if some people are going to be more drawn to you, you know, and 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 your 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 muscular status and how you look, and uh, other people might be drawn to me and or Joel or the things that we have to share, or they might be drawn to you first, and then they might want a taste of us, or they might not be drawn to either of us. They might be watching this podcast like these dudes need to shut the fuck up. They don't know shit, you know. That seems right. that one sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. So I think it's. Yeah, I think it's important, man. And obviously, I've heard nothing but amazing things uh, about Awareness School. You, yep. I don't need to tell you how I feel about you and how I feel about Melissa. Um, you're both yes, you very, very dear friends. <laughs> I think you as do well. as well. I uh, dear, dear friends, and I, I love and respect each one of you. And um, you provide a value to my life already. And uh, I know anyone that works with you is going to get value from it as well. well thank you very much. Hmm. Welcome. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, I truly, I truly mean that. I don't know I'm what we're going to title it. I don't know what we're going to title it, but I, we'll see. Three shades of green. Oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> so creative. Stephen, man, thanks so much for your time, bro. We appreciate it. I love the way your mind works. I love the way you're able to articulate your thoughts so coherently. Um, uh, guys, thanks for listening. Anything else? No, no that's it. Um, looking forward to having it on and again in the future at some point. Um, yeah. And for everyone else, like 2023, you know, do what you need to do so you could uh, enjoy the experience of being you even more moving forward. Absolutely. I feel like that's I something Stephen would say, the experience of being you, you know. <laughs> that's why I said it. It was like an homage, a little we'll, homage we'll, to you. We'll talk about that after. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right. Take everyone. Bye. Oh, man, what a fun conversation that was. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you get the chance, please rate, review, subscribe. Wherever you're listening, it would help us out a lot. Also, just one more time, if you're keen, if you're looking for a community, if you're looking for knowledge, um, if you're looking to be inspired and stay on the path of your highest calling, check out our private membership community, Friends of the Truth. You get three calls a month and you get an awesome Telegram community um, to constantly engage with as well and to be supported on your path. We'd love to meet and connect with you. You can find more at friendsofthetruth.co. Be well, and we'll see you next week. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.